Welcome to the Ink to Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, we finish our climb to the top of Roderick Thorpe's 1979 thriller novel, Nothing Lasts Forever. Now let's wrap a fire hose around us and roll off the roof. Before we get to the uh, second half of this novel here, I wanted to ask you, so we know that Sinatra played Joe Leland in the original The Detective. I was thinking about it in the intervening time, and I bet Roderick Thorpe was thinking about Sinatra the whole time he was writing this novel. Do you think that affected the way he like imagined this character? I think so. What's funny is you, in our last episode, you had mentioned like the way that you envision leland's character was an older bruce willis after we recorded last episode i then saw him as like frank sinatra with like the suit and the hat everything like a full decked out frank sinatra look (laughs) yeah i i i I don't know why it didn't occur to me last time but i bet you i mean thorpe had at the point he wrote this novel had already had a film made about the previous novel in which frank sinatra starred so i'm sure he was thinking of him and i and that explains a lot of the um flirtatious women and situations where everybody seems to just find him super attractive because you know thorpe was probably thinking i got this you know frank sinatra is renowned for being attractive and everybody loved him so if he was thinking he had him playing it i guess that makes sense we should talk i want to talk more about what the movie would have been like if sinatra had played that role (laughs) maybe maybe in the movie episode i don't know what do you think yeah sure Okay, so for the book episode, though, uh, let's let's get back into the uh, summary here. Chapter 10, Joe decides he's going to put his badge on um, so that he can get identified by the police if they ever get into the building. He notices a police car is outside driving slowly around, kind of scoping out the place. This is where he goes to the stairwell and uh, steps on some broken glass. So, I, I, you know... This is we were we were one chapter shy of this happening last time, but uh, yeah, this is the you know I, I'm really glad this happens because, like I said last time, it's one of my favorite details from the movie. Similarly, in the book, it it's just really an arresting detail. You know, he he his blood blood's pouring out of his feet. He describes it like as being really nasty cuts. Uh, he talks about the glass grinding into his flesh as he's walking, um, which is all just really good. And he hears some gunfire, goes up and uh, opens the door, and he startles a woman up there who ends up being his fourth kill, uh, another terrorist. And he just shoots her immediately, basically, <laughs> once he identifies that she's a she's a terrorist, before she can grab her gun. After he does that, someone else shoots at him. He, uh, he gets in a gunfight with a guy, um, makes a ball of plastic explosive. Oh, and then he, he, he pulls like a... Basically, like, hey, look over there kind of moment, like almost like comical, like, hey, what's that? <laughs> and basically gets the guy to look, it, although it's weird because at first he's like, I'm not going to fall for that. And he's like, no, really, look over there. <laughs> and then he does <laughs> anyway. And he shoots, he shoots the guy driving him out a window. And that's number five. So right away, he's taken out two terrorists in this for this first chapter back. And uh, he upgrades his Thompson to a AK-47. 
and finds some towels and rubber bands them around his feet, uh, which is kind of a funny idea here. But, I mean, he's got to stop the bleeding somehow. And uh, turns on the radio and finds the cop on the other end. A lot of ground there. Yeah. I always, like you said, I really like the detail of the glass in the feet and the way that Thorpe describes it is really gruesome because it's just like blood pouring everywhere. And it's definitely one of my favorite details from the from the film as well to, to see it here was fun. Uh, it was like it was a trap laid by the terrorists too. So they knew that he was barefoot because the clothes were all left in the in the room. So they were like, "Oh, let's set a trap, break glass everywhere," and and it totally it messes him up for the rest of the, of the story. Yeah, so it's kind of different than it is in the movie, I guess, because it's more of a trap laid for him. Like they they I think they had blown out the lights in the in the stairwell in that area, and then they had laid the glass on the stairs, and that's I think when he steps on it. Whereas in the movie, it's more of like, a, oh, look, he's not wearing uh, shoes. I think it's Gruber. And then Gruber's like, shoot the lights or shoot the glass or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it is kind of like deliberate in the movie, too, but in a different way. Yeah, so uh, the, he starts talking to the cop here, and we find out that this is Al. That He doesn't identify himself at this point. Um, he goes by a couple different names at different points, like Colin Beck and, and stuff. But um, this, is, this is Al, and, and, and he eventually does start calling him that. Because he says, you know, call me Al. Um, which I think is the same. It's, although it's interesting because that might be... In the movie, isn't that like an alias? Like he says, call me Al? Or is that his real name? I, for, I can't remember. I can't remember either. The specifics. Yeah, we'll find out in the movie episode. <laughs> so Joe has a heart-to-heart with this cop. Tells him like the details of what's been going on. Says he's killed two women. Which, you know, seems a bit like an overshare. Like he's, I guess he's trying to maybe unburden himself of the guilt or something, but he immediately is like, oh yeah, I've killed two women up here, which I'm like, oh, I don't know if you want to lead with that. If you're trying to convince somebody that you're credible, you know, you're like credible. Yeah. He talks about having the detonators for the, for the explosives, which is like really screwing up the terrorist plans. And, uh, the co- you know, the co- cop asks him to throw the detonators out the window, but Joe, you know, thinks about how it's essentially the leverage he has right now on them. And, basically that they might become useful so he doesn't do that this is the point where we start to get like pushback he starts to coordinate with the police a little bit and they they're like they keep telling him to do certain things and he's like because of his experiences he's like smarter he thinks he's smarter than them or he thinks he knows best so he decides to do something different and you could argue that it's like putting people's lives in danger but ultimately like he feels like he knows best and he's the one who's in the situation so yeah you're right i mean it's a little bit different than the movie too because it's not as much about how he's just doing everything he can to survive. Um, it is a little bit more like it feels like he thinks he knows what is best for the scenario and he is taking it away from the cops and like, I don't know. It's really just about the way they focus. Cause like both are still true, but they focus more on him feeling like he's in control of the situation and really knows what's best and that the cops don't know anything. And you know, in the movie it's, it's more of, you don't know what it's like in here. I have to do everything I can to survive. So he has a uh, he has a moment where he sits down to eat some candy bars and he starts thinking about a plane that he it's the last plane he bought. We find out later, and this is something that he he returns to throughout the novel. Um, this is a a moment where he thinks about when he flew between two ships and like waved his you know like waggled his wings and like all the sailors erupted in cheers or something it's clear that this is just like a really fond memory where he feels like he had freedom and it's something that he reminisces about and thinks fondly of and it's kind of his happy place i guess if you want to think of it that way 
because he's an older guy, he's like, it's like the glory days of like when he was a hero and that kind of thing. And since he's like retired and just training people, he, he like goes back to these times that he was the, the glory of, of people cheering for him for saving them because he was, you know, whatever he was doing as a, as a fighter pilot or as a pilot. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember the details because I, I thought it was the last plane he remembers buying, which I, if he bought the plane, I'm assuming this was after the war, but it did seem like he was also, I don't know, maybe they were just soldiers out in the bay doing something or in the water doing something, but it didn't yeah, seem no. like this was during war. I think you're right. Yeah. He, he was like, he keeps talking about the last, that plane. And then he kind of gets away from flying. Is this where he talks about that? Where he like, he talks about it later, but I think it's all about this same plane. It's called the 310. Yeah. Anyway, I don't think it's super important, but it's, it's, it's his happy place. It's a memory he has that he keeps going back to, I think to kind of like center himself and calm down a little bit. So Al indicates that the cops are coming in. And Joe Joe warns them that the conversation they're having is being monitored. And he uh, starts putting plastic explosives into a chair and tying it and using like a typewriter, I think, to weigh it down, which I think is kind of a funny update for the movie because I think it's a monitor, right? Yeah. There's like a little bit more technology in the, in the movie than there is here, even in just a few years, you know, the few years difference. Yeah, he's he's really worried about it. And he's like, oh, this isn't going to go well. So he asks the cop and, and Al says they're kicking the shit out of us. OK, so I wanted to know if you could make heads or tails of this. There's a lot of talk about an armored car and the elevator cars, which I really wish Thorpe had used a different word to describe the elevators because it becomes confusing because he switches between talking about the car on the street and the car that's in the building. And I kept getting confused about like exactly what was happening. But my understanding is that there were, he is able to identify that there's a terrorist in a elevator car heading down at one point. And he can see that they have the like lid open to the elevator. And he so he drops his like chair bomb onto the elevator through down the shaft, which is very similar to the movie. But it's kind of I was kind of confused by what car was where and and why he was doing it and the way he was doing it yeah i i had the same thing happen where i was like he he uses cars like a lot he kept saying cars and yeah i i was trying to figure out because at first i thought he pushed the bomb out the window or something onto a cop car to like make them think that they were under attack even though they were already attacking but that wasn't i don't i think you're right i, th I don't think that was the case there was there was like a terrorist in the elevator and then later on al says like something about how there might have been two in there and and Leland's just like, don't, he's like, I gotta, I gotta lowball it. Cause just in case there was only one kind of thing. Yeah. And then come to find out, I think, I think this is Carl and he doesn't actually die from the explosion. He just gets all like fucked up, but he's, he doesn't die here. Cause I don't think we, he counts this as like a confirmed kill. Does he? I don't think so. Cause this is like, even later they're like, he's like, I can't count a probably. I thought that he killed one for sure. But then there was like potentially a second one in the elevator, but Maybe I'm wrong about that. Oh, no, you're right. Yeah, that's what it is. He definitely killed one because he, he, yeah, he confirms it here. Definitely killed one. And then but there's one more that they may be killed. And I think that one's Carl. Yeah, I think and so. instead he's just wounded. The, I like the way that, that Thorpe describes this scene, too, when when he drops the bomb and like the ground is like he says the ground is like rippling and waves and stuff in the building and like he talks about all the shrapnel that shot out from the floors into like the signs nearby and stuff like the the billboards were torn up from the glass that flew out and that kind of thing yeah that was it was really cool like the destruction that's getting 
rot outside of the building something yeah that is described and this is when the police really get on him they're like what the hell are you doing up there yeah there's a line here that i noted because i thought it was uh, a good theme for this novel that also applies to the movie the only thing that could genuinely surprise them at this point was more effort than they thought he was capable of exerting and i thought that was like a, a really good like that's his op- that's his MO throughout this. Like he's going to do more than they think he's capable of at all times. And that's the only thing he can continue to do to surprise the terrorists is just do more, do more. Right? And that's the same you could say the same thing in the movie. Yeah, he he definitely especially in this he's an older guy, so it's crazy to see some of the stuff he does. Yeah, so this is where he uh starts thinking about how he's he thinks he's growing numb to killing people because he I guess he's not really thinking about he doesn't feel bad about the last three because he kills three people pretty rapidly here, right? Mm-hmm. And he's 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 growing numb to it. So Joe goes to the 39th floor where all the electronics are, and he starts recounting what he knows of Hans, well, not Hans, sorry, Tony Gruber's backstory, that he was a rich kid, that he joined something called the Bader-Meinhof gang, and then turned on his parents, and he's kind of a, this like idealist criminal like he had like he's part of this um terrorist group that seems to have a lot of political affiliations and they're like rebellious and and he's not as in the movie hans is a lot more of like a faker whereas it feels to me like tony believes these things at least somewhat right yeah although he is also like a psychopath in the movie so i mean in the book yeah I don't know what to make of this gang thing, but yeah, you know, it's, it's he thinks about his affiliations and, and all this stuff. And then he, yeah, he, he talks about how Gruber is fascinated by death, which I think really sets him up as this almost serial killer-esque psychopath, you know, who's, who's instead of becoming a serial killer, you know, decided to become a terrorist, international terrorist. Um, but yeah, same kind of thing, like uh, 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 someone who's fascinated by death and murders a lot of people. So he flips back on the radio to talk to the cop and he tells him what's going on. They talk about how they think that he got one with the bomb, which was number six. And the cop says that the 17th and 18th floor are completely blown out. And this is when they talk about how a bunch of debris rained down. And this is also when Al hands the radio over to a Dwayne T. Robinson commanding officer. Now, I don't remember. Is this the same name of the guy in the movie? Like the same? I think it is, right? Yeah, I think so. He's a commanding officer who wants to take over the situation, right? Yeah. I don't remember if he has the exact same name, but it's the same character for sure. Yeah. It doesn't go well. Joe doesn't like him immediately and immediately says, uh, put the other guy back on. And once once he gets the other guy back on, he opens up a little bit, talks about being a cop, uh, makes a really unfunny joke about how he's black now because of all the dirt on him. Yeah. There's a couple of these moments. It was so weird it's because weird it's too, like... Cause like he's it's it's misinformation too he's like yeah i'm black now and i wasn't in the beginning and they were like supposed to use like context clues to know that he had like covered himself in like grease and all this other stuff and like i i was like i was like you're really confused like at the end of the day you want to be as clear as you can to people who are potentially storming the building with guns and he's saying like yeah you'll know me because i'm the guy who is is black now that wasn't before and like yeah i look like i could be related to you or something so weird it's like this benign it's like almost benign racism although i don't even want to call it that because it's not but 
it's I, it's clear that Thorpe doesn't think that this is bad. You know what I mean? He doesn't think that this kind of stuff is bad. He also has a moment where he 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 describes the young black officer as not having any ghetto in his voice. Yeah. It's another <laughs> super racist thing to say. Extremely, yeah. But it's clear that like the author just is completely unaware of this. Like, because I don't think he genuinely is trying to be like have malice here. It's just ignorance. Like he doesn't realize that this is offensive. I agree. I mean, it's not an excuse, but it's still like that's exactly right. Like it's just an explanation. And if you look at the novel, like he befriends this cop, right? Yeah. And so to me, it seems like Thorpe is trying to make it, you know, and this. A story about people who are very different coming together, right, over a common, common uh, threat. But he just doesn't handle it. I mean, you can argue about the movie handling it well, but I feel like he doesn't handle it as well as the movie does. So Joe tells him about this guy he can go talk to and find out everything he need, they need to know about who Joe is. And he asks uh, Al to send a message to Kathy Logan, the stewardess. Um, cause he, he wants her to, he wants her to know that he was cut off while he was trying to say Merry Christmas. And then he says, he's going to go talk to, to Gruber now. And the cop, uh, says he's going to listen in. And this is another line that I wrote down just cause I thought it was really weird. He's talking about Gruber and, and, and he describes him. He says, he juices my fruit and I juice his. <sighs> what do <laughs> what did you make of that line? Like, what does that mean? It's gotta be like a, I scratch your back, you scratch my back kind of thing, right? No, but but it's like more adversarial than that, right? Yeah, because he's talking about Gruber, right? But it's like he juices that's my right. fruit, like, and I juice his, right? So like they're getting off together, like they're like they're like it's <laughs> they're like the thrill. They're I'm thrilling each that, other because people won't know what the hell I'm talking about. I'll be like, ah, <laughs> you're juicing my fruit, juicing and then just fruit. like <laughs> let them give me a weird fucking look and be like, what the hell are you talking about? It sounds like one of those weird juicy fruit ads. Oh, we should have started the episode with that. <laughs> now let's juice each other's fruits. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so Gruber puts Ellis on. And now this is another scene that goes very similar to the to the movie. But I also found that I was being affected by the movie. Because if you read it plainly here, Ellis actually isn't, like, bullshitting. He genuinely has been taken hostage and he's genuinely being threatened. His life is being threatened. And he's trying to get... Now he's kind of a, you know... He's smar- smarmy about it. You know, <laughs> he's, he's you know, saying, Oh, you know, you've, I've done you all these favors, you know, Joe. And Joe's like, you know, these... I don't know. I keep... See, like I said, I keep thinking about the, the movie where he is faking it, kind of. But then it ends up being real. Mm-hmm. This This goes down the same way. He gets executed. But I don't... I never got the idea that in the mo- in the sh- in the book that Ellis went into the scene thinking he was like good to go like he does in the movie you know yeah it was it was weird cuz he was like basically trying to give Leland code that he had been like protecting his his daughter he'd yeah. been like oh, I've been done you all these favors all day today kind of thing and and so he's supposed to use those clues to figure out the fact like okay so so they don't know that um that Stephanie is is his daughter. Like the terrorists don't know that yet, and it's like that's how kind of how how Leland figures that out. So after after Ellis gets shot, Joe agrees to give them the detonators, which I immediately was like, okay, this is bullshit. And, and I'm I'm sure Gruber doesn't believe it either, but he says, yeah, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll give them to you. You know, you win. And 
switches over to the police channel and Dwayne Robinson is there to chew him out, uh, just like the movie, you know, and Joe says, go fuck yourself. So <laughs> the he has the same kind of attitude, but one of the major differences between this book and movie is I think a lot of the dialogue is like less inspired. Um, yeah. It That's seems it. a lot of like just like what your first idea of what he might say, and he's not he's not as witty as uh, John McClane is. Exactly, movie. that's what I was gonna say. In the movie, the characters are like well, specifically John McClane is like the, he's so lovable because he's like this action hero who's also like really funny, wisecracking, wisecracking. Like it, and like the jokes, they're a little cheesy, they're a little, but like they like fit for that that kind of action movie that he's in that eighties yeah. action. I want to do some more research for the movie episode, but I I've always heard that there's a lot of um, ad libbing that went on in that movie. That a lot of it was like Bruce Willis just ad libbing stuff. I totally. So I, I wonder how much of how how many how many of those iconic lines were just ad lib. I we should look into that. Yeah, definitely. It's getting t- it's getting late now. It's about three a.m. And he he talks more to Tony now on the radio. He's just all over the radio at this point, just talking to everybody. And he knows that everybody's listening to everybody else. Every time he's talking to Al, he's thinking about how uh, Tony's listening to him, Gruber. I should just call him Gruber because it gets confusing. Uh, he he goes by a lot of different things: Little Tony, Tony the Red, and and you know Anthony and Gruber. You know, <laughs> and there is a Hans, but he's not him. So it, it, the names get a little confusing. So it's Gruber. Mm-hmm. And so Gruber's always listening, but then also he t- keeps like seamlessly talking to Al and the other cops, and he knows that they're listening whenever he talks to Gruber, which I guess is kind of similar to the movie. It's maybe even a little clearer in the book because at least he's switching between channels and stuff, whereas in the movie, I think he just is always on the same channel, you know, ostensibly. Mm-hmm. He tells Tony that, you know, he basically he ran into the wrong guy, um, and then he kind of realizes that well, that doesn't really hold up with me pretending like I'm going to give over these detonators. That sounds like I'm ready to put up more of a fight. And uh, then he tells Gruber, oh, you know, you killed Ellis just to prove to your men that, you know, you have power, essentially, a show of strength because they're doubting you right now. They're looking at you and wondering how you're letting this one guy like wreck your wreck your night. So he, he kinda, he's kind of taunting Gru- uh, Gruber a little bit here. Uh, so Leland going back up, he... Uh, He's planning to get to the roof because he he knows that they're coming for him at this point. And he's almost to the to the roof when he finds a girl in army fatigues. And she uh, oh, no, he doesn't find her. She finds him essentially and gets him cornered. Now, it's interesting because I think this is kind of our version of the scene that happens in the movie where Gruber gets the gun on him Mm -hmm. because the same kind of thing where like she has the drop on him and has a gun on him. And she demands to know where the detonators are, and he's she's you know escorting him, and he distracts her for a second, tackles her, and in the scuffle gets shot, uh, shot in the thigh, and then a second shot goes off and like burns his flesh with the muzzle flare, which is a cool detail, and then he gets the best of her, punches her unconscious, and then shoots her in the right eye, and then he faints. So another pretty brutal, pretty brutal scene here of him killing another woman. This is his third woman he's killed. Yeah, it's not quite as much fun as as when it happens in the movie. Because in the movie you're like, oh yeah, he's doing it, and in this you're just like, every time it's like this like grueling kill, and he's like really affected by it, and he he always he's getting really really messed up. Yeah, and it's I mean I I, I commend Thorpe a little bit for this because he's trying to. At the same time as he's kind of glorifying this whole stuff, like he continues to undercut it by showing how brutal these kills are and 
he doesn't shy away from it you know like he shows it in graphic detail and it's interesting because i think you could you could rightfully make an argument that the tone of this novel holds it back a little bit from being as popular as it might have been otherwise because i think some of this stuff is a little bit off-putting and it doesn't line up with what we know from the movie um which you could argue is the more popular route to take. Now, maybe Thorpe had like some sort of artistic, you know, thing in mind that he really didn't want to compromise. But I also wonder if maybe an editor at some point in the process could have pushed him in a, in a, in a way that might have made this novel even more popular. But I think there are some reasons in this novel that it's not as popular as it might be otherwise. Okay, so he calls back Al and he tells him, you know, hey, I just killed another woman. And they they both agree that it's really fucked up that now it's weird, too, because like it seems like this gang of terrorists is almost 50 50 men and women. Right. Like there's a lot of women in this gang, they, like they a surprising about, amount. Yeah. And they keep talking about how every single one of them is so young. Like he just got these like child oh, yeah. soldiers, like all of them are like yeah. 20. Yeah, they're all like 20 to 25, it seems like. Now, the cops are happy they, that he's got another terrorist and basically they focus on that. They've looked into Joe and know more about him. Um, this is where finally where the cop uh, tells him, call call me Al, which I was like, finally, because he had been like really kind of vague who this person was for a long time. And I was like, OK, this is Al for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, although Al in the I should say Al in the novel is very different. He's young. He's like a young kid, uh, you know, 20 something himself. Al says that they called Kathy and that the media is here now and that they want to set up this like call between Joe and Kathy eventually. And. Joe's happy about that because he, you know, he's been wanting to talk to Kathy this whole time. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was pretty, pretty interesting that this girl that he barely knew was really, really invested in him and was. I mean, I guess I get it because they kissed and it's like supposed to be the love story, the through line. But it was pretty wild that she was like as invested in his safety as yeah. she was. Yeah, almost unbelievable, right? I agree. Well, we get to more of that later. Uh, so, chapter thirteen, he wakes up and it's kind of surprising because we don't we didn't know he was asleep so he it seems that he's just like really exhausted and 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 maybe maybe falling asleep and having these little short naps or something and he wakes up because he's in pain he starts surveying his many wounds and he 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 theorizes that he thinks he's lost about a pint of blood and he talks to al and al's asking him about the number of terrorists and and there's a lot of like out you know the cops not quite believing the numbers he's providing them like how do you know there's 12 are you sure there's 12 how how do you know you've killed that many are you sure you've killed that many and so it's interesting because there's a lot made over this this like number stuff which i guess i mean in real life would be very important because they would need to know an exact number right yeah but if somebody's telling you the number you would probably believe it until you had a reason not to like if yeah, some guy's telling maybe. you, and I think it's basically just a setup that later we're like told that they're all gone and there might be one remaining. Yeah. Well, here he starts thinking about his happy place again. This is where he talks about how it's the 310 is the last plane he bought, um, how he had to quit flying and focus on his work. And it seems like he regrets that he's worrying about Stephanie here he has a really long now this is so he has a long pessimistic thought about how the world is growing disconnected and unfeeling and like no and like how the building is here when it could have been a park where people would sit on a bench and enjoy nature. And it's funny cuz it's this he has these thoughts a few times throughout the novel where he's thinking about how the modern he's railing against the modern world, right? Oh, everybody's getting so disconnected and tight, you know, caught up in media and all this stuff. 
And it's funny because I know this is, you know, 1979 novel. So, I mean, it's just the tip of the iceberg at this point, right? Well, I also think it's just like, as you get older, I think every generation feels that way when they look at the younger generation and like with the things that well, are happening. And that's, and... I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's like he's rallying against it and it's like it's nothing compared to like it is now. But, you know, you still have people doing that today. Right. And it's like you said, it's like every generation goes through this where progress and technology intimidates them and they don't understand it. And they think that everything's going to hell and that the world doesn't care anymore. And you know, I don't know. It's it is kind of an interesting. I mean, I believe it that an old like an older character like this would have these thoughts. But it's always interesting to me. Like it's like you know, people go back to what is it like ancient Rome and like there's quotes of like people saying youth today don't you know are going to ruin the world. They don't understand what's going you know the realities and stuff. Like it's been it's being said forever, right? Exactly. Well, the times they are changing. Bob Dylan, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's it's always it's always yeah, the next generation is going to ruin the world and they don't know what's they don't know anything. So yeah, we get that here. It's very like old man grumpy thinking about the world. And this is when he hears from Al on the radio that he has air support coming. And Joe's immediately skeptical skeptical about them sending in helicopters. And he starts to think about how he's expendable and how if he gets shot in the like as the helicopters arrive shooting up the roof or whatever, and he gets killed that they're going to, it's going to be like a no big deal. Like it's, he was there like helping them and then he got caught in the crossfire and he, he thinks that it's going to be kind of, you know, played as, as, as him being heroic and that maybe it's part of the plan. Yeah. Well, the, the leader on the ground of the police force is like kind of not like we saw before. He wasn't really getting along with him on the radio. So he he's just yeah. kind of theorizing that like this guy doesn't give a shit about me, and he as long as they they can get boots on the roof, then that's all that matters, kind of. This is also when Al tells him that news networks are broadcasting their conversation, like live on the news, and so then Joe immediately drops an f bomb, um, <laughs> which I thought was funny, because uh, he just doesn't care. But this is also an interesting difference from the movie because that never really happens in the movie there's never like these radio conversations they're having don't get picked up by the by the news do they i don't think they ever do i don't think so like, there's a lot of news like reporters on the ground and they're cutting to them and they're saying stuff and i think they're live on the scene but i don't think we're getting any sort of like radio pickup or anything like that yeah which honestly i feel like is kind of a plot hole because that makes a lot of sense if they're just broadcasting out on radios like of course the news are going to pick it up and, and be broadcasting it probably, or at least, you know, reporting on everything that's being said. Yeah. Well, what was the difference between, I don't really know, but like radios from like the seventies to like the early eighties or like the late eighties, I guess it's like, could you have like military grade, like radio wave stuff that couldn't be picked up by the public yeah. or something? Well, and there's a lot of like range limitations. So maybe you're right. Like if they, because in the movie, I think they keep the the like media back more than it seems like they keep them in the in in the book. And maybe that would prevent them from picking up these radio transmissions because they don't go forever. Yeah, they have a limited range. But anyway, in the in the book, they are being broadcast on news, and so he uh, Joe warns Al that the gang really wants to shoot down a helicopter to prove that they you know still got it. And he's he's worried about them sending the heli helicopters, but they're going to do it anyway. Yeah, which is and like Al you, offers. 
they don't care about the the pilots apparently because they're like oh it's fine yeah they'll be like uh well they just don't believe joe they're like yeah right you know kind of thing well, i just don't understand so, that mentality why didn't they believe him throughout this whole yeah well there's there's a lot of that in the movie too yeah. I, I that's one thing that like as an i feel like as an adult seeing that movie doesn't hold up as well for me is that the cops other than other than john are really stupid yeah and I, I maybe it's not quite as bad in the in the book as it is in the movie but um yeah this is another example of them being a little bit stupid and not but not believing him Al offers to put Kathy on. He's gotten hold of her. And so Joe says, okay, let's do it. And he has this conversation with Kathy where she's worried about him. And he tells her about what's been going on and how he's had to kill all these people and how he got cut off when he was trying to talk to her. Again, they he and, barely knows her. And he's like, look, I, yeah. I need you to accept me even though I've murdered all these women and all these people here. <laughs> yeah. And I she's killed three women like, tonight. Yeah. It's it's a, that's what he tells her, and she's just like, "You're doing what you got to do." And like, I just don't think she would be <laughs> yeah. that invested. Yeah, and she's like, "Oh, I want to see you when this is over." And you know, like, I kind of get some of it because, like, even if it's someone you just met, you know, he's in this crazy situation. So even if you don't really believe it, maybe you say like, "Yeah, you got to get out of there so we can like talk." But it's more like he, she should be like, "Yeah, I really would like to, you know, continue to get to know you." after this but instead they're talking to each other like they're longtime lovers right right yeah i don't know it's it's something about it is a little weird I, I agree like it's a little off from believability to me i guess we learned that joe's gonna wait till sunrise and that um he's kind of playing up his disability while he's on the he's on the on the radio with kathy and you know because he wants gruber because he knows gruber's listening that's the other thing he knows gruber's listening to all of this so he wants gruber to think that he's like even more injured and can barely walk and you know i mean he is pretty injured and, and can barely walk but he's making it seem even worse than it is so he gets off the phone with with kathy and now al or the, the radio and now al says uh basically says that he loves him calls him his brother they have this kind of bonding moment. So that was all very similar to the movie and, and nice. And, and I liked yeah, that, I like that stuff. connection between him and Al was good. I mean, I, yeah, I agree. I like that stuff. Like, I think they do a good job with that. And then much like happens in every, like a lot of other chapters from here on out, Joe just keeps thinking about how he really wants to kill them all. He's like, I just want to kill every last one of them. <laughs> He's really bloodthirsty for, for the rest of these people. It's crazy because here soon we're, we he mentions for the first time in like, 13 chapters his grandchildren like in a little while he's been thinking about like a lot about his daughter and stuff and then here in a little while he's like i gotta save my grandchildren and you're like oh you care about them now that was <laughs> yeah no i agree it, they yeah they it's they get completely ignored for the most part so this is where a man calling himself taco bill comes on the on to the radio and he's and and, and there's others too that kind of butt in and, and joe has to tell them all to stay stay the fuck off the channel um but yeah, Taco Bill like comes out of nowhere. He's some dude who's just like caught up in it, and he knows that Joe is getting screwed over by the police, and so he's there to help him out, kind of thing. Yeah, I th I thought of this as like the modern day like like behind the scenes like man in the chair hacker type thing, where he's like he's like I got to help him out from the outside. I got to be his, like. There's not a lot he can do though. <laughs> yeah, but if he keeps he's just like this character that pops in, and he's like yeah, he's like some like something will happen, and he's like stoked about it, and he's like we're doing it. Like, what are you doing? So he starts thinking, this is when he makes his plan about the fire hose. He he starts unraveling it and, and planning how he's going to 
how he's going to roll off, you know, when, when the time comes. Before we read this, kind of, before we read this, did you think this scene was going to happen in the book? No. <laughs> no neither did I. <laughs> I, I, not, I thought it was going to be, you know, honestly, no, I didn't think the hose thing, like that part of it, I really didn't expect. Now it does go down a little differently. But yeah. I thought that was going to be like an inherently a diehard thing. Like they made that for the movie yeah. and come to find out that over the top scene is from the book. And like you say, it's a little yeah. different. Yeah. The, I mean, I, I, you may be a little bit more realistic. I don't know. Like he, he eyes like a spot that he thinks is going to go and all this stuff. Um, he like seems it's a lot more planned. Whereas in the, in the movie, it's like a last second. Oh shit. It's going to blow up. I need to jump off. Let me grab this hose. Mm-hmm. Spur of the moment. Whereas this is like a premeditated thing that he's, he's like, I'm going to do this when the time comes. And that's what he's thinking about now. Oh, and he hears car horns because people are showing up and there's a big crowd gathering to like watch what's going on. All right. Before we go any farther, I want to stop and tell you about Audible. Uh, We have an affiliate link, audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. If you use that link, you can get a free credit and free 30 days. And you could use that credit to pick up a book like, uh, how about Stieg Larsson's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? Another kind of exciting murder although it's a little more murder mystery crime thriller but still you know if you like this book you might like that yeah yeah i've read that book i'm a big fan it's really good um i read the next book in the series as well and it's just really well written and and definitely very thrilling honestly i would say it's a little bit better than this book that we're reading right now (laughs) i really like that book so check that out potential and honestly a potential link to film project right like it's another yeah that you could do, we you know you could look at both adaptations maybe there's there's some some interesting potential there yeah it's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film all right chapter 14 the helicopters appear on the horizon heading over you know coming up over the mountains and heading towards them and it's interesting because the sun's starting to to rise here and and joe's been planning to put his back to the sun so that if the terrorists come out they're going to be blinded this is another difference from the movie right because in the movie i don't think it ever becomes morning but here it's like the sun's rising and it's the next day, right? Yeah, it's definitely different. What's funny is the heli- anytime helicopters are on the horizon with like a sun either setting or rising, it reminds me of Apocalypse Now, that sh- that <laughs> famous shot from Apocalypse Now. So it, for whatever reason, I thought of Apocalypse Now and Die Hard mixed together for this scene. <laughs> yeah, well, he's talking to... So here's another, th- another moment that's very confusing. I mean, this is maybe even more confusing than the car thing. So he's talking on the radio to Kathy, Taco Bill, the police, and Gruber, all at the same time, seamlessly switching between the two, and there's no dialogue attribution tags. So there's no, there's like very little where they say like, Taco Bill said this. He just like gives us all this dialogue and expects us to figure it out by context clues, who's speaking. Did you get lost in this? Because I felt like I was getting a little lost in who was saying what. Yeah, it was it was definitely like you said. I I don't know if that's like a writer choice or if you've seen that before. It, 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 but another it moment like, where I think an editor could have helped with this and said, "Hey, because like thrillers is very like bare bones, but still, there's it gets if if you're getting confused, that's never good." Yeah, I mean, I get it. He wanted it to be really quick, but he it was it was wild. Like I was just like, and you had to figure out. Like I went back a couple times to like f- make sure I knew who he was talking to during all this. Like it's a couple of pages of just like dialogue. Yeah. 
So uh, the helicopters get closer, and this is when uh, Joe asks Taco Bill to flood Channel 30 or to, like, jam it or whatever. So he floods it with Christmas music, and then he throws the radio as a distraction, and the terrorists start to come out onto the ra- to the roof or, sh- like, start shooting out as the helicopters arrive. And, you know, this is when Joe puts his plan into motion. Uh, the, there's movement at the door. He exchanges fire a little bit with them, and then right then, uh, Joe leans out, picks, shoots this window that he's picked out as his landing spot, and he's leaning out over the edge to shoot down at it, which I found a little bit unbelievable. Like I, it just I couldn't quite picture a, an angle that he would have to where he could actually pick a certain window and shoot it out, and that's one of the reasons why I think the movie version might be works actually a little better. Yeah, it was. I was like trying to figure it out logistically too. Like I was just like, all right, I'm going with it. He he shot the window, whatever. Yeah, but he I, shot a window that was underneath him somehow. Um, he picked it out and was like, "That's the window I'm going to land at," because I I figured out how long this rope is, and I'm going to you know, I, and so he blows it out so he doesn't have to like hit um, a solid object like he does in the movie. So the helicopters are opening fire, shooting up the roof, and guess what? One's get, one gets blasted out of the air, like he said. Yeah, ter- terrorist comes out with an RPG and shoots one of the helicopters, um, exactly as Joe said was going to happen. It ex- and as it explodes, he's. This is where Joe rolls off the roof to save himself, and it's interesting because I think in the movie, in the movie, there's like a it's like the C four or plastic explosive right goes off, and he's yeah. getting away from that. Whereas this, yeah, it's more of like an RPG hitting a helicopter. Although a helicopter does get blown up, so it's kind of similar, right? Mm-hmm. And but yeah, here he rolls himself off the roof because he's he's he can't jump; he's too screwed up. And as he rolls himself off, he you know comes back towards the building, grabs onto the ledge that he is like eyed, pulls himself up into the building, and it, it's a very similar moment where like the weight of the hose is pulling him out the window and all this stuff, and he has to get free of it or he's going to get pulled out. Although it's not as clear to me exactly what was happening and we didn't necessarily have the, you know, the end of the hose getting like carried off by a heavy thing like I think happens in the movie. It was a little yeah. different, right? It's a tense scene in the movie. I like that scene. Yeah, I like it too. So, but it is similar here and he gets free finally. And it's funny because he notices that Rivers is, you know, Rivers' body is here and he's like startled by it. And then he sh- he unloads into the Rivers' dead body. Waste of ammo. Yeah, like this like, is weird. Doing, this is a really weird moment. Like, I guess he's so like, emo- like he's so cr- such a crazy moment where he just jumped off a building. I guess is the explanation because otherwise Joe was very methodical and and you know clear headed, and this seems just like a moment of insanity almost. Even when he was up on the building, he was like returning fire before the before the helicopter got shot down. He was like returning fire, and he was they talked about how he was doing it in bursts of like two two shots or three. And then he gets down and he just un- and he sees a dead body and reacts by unloading a full clip into it. It just didn't seem I don't know. Yeah, it was weird. It was like he was startled by a dead body, but like I don't get why. I don't know. Or maybe he's just like fr- he was also like maybe frustrated with Rivers for being caught up in all this. I don't know. It was weird. Yeah. Anyway, chapter fifteen. Uh, his legs got really numb, and he's worried that he's going to lose it. Uh, eventually, he figures that Gruber thinks he's dead at this point. The police thinks he's dead, and it's kind of freeing because he's like, "Everybody thinks I'm dead, so no one's going to expect me to do anything." Thinks about how he wants to kill all of them. He goes up to thirty-six, uh, where his you know quote unquote fortress was that he built up. Um, ret- retrieves some explosives that he had there. 
Uh, there was a cool uh, uh, detail here that I really liked where he goes up to the uh, the dead woman and he says her kit bag was glued to the puddle of blood in which she lay, which I just thought was really cool because it's like the passage of time where the blood has become this like more viscous. Congealed. Yeah. Yeah, congealed. And it just, I love attention to detail like that. And I, I, thought, I thought that was a cool detail. Um, he gets a new radio from her because his other one he threw. And... So this is another like misstep here, and he even mentions like, "Oh shit, I probably screwed up." He goes over to the window and he throws his wallet down, I guess to like let the cops know he lived. But the crowd sees it. He put and like they a note cheer. in it. I think yeah, he, he, put a note in it. he put a note in it, so he threw it off. And I don't think we ever get exactly what the note said, but it was obviously a message to the police of some kind. Yeah, maybe we do. I don't know. Um, so he goes down to thirty three, finds an office with a TV, and turns it on. Oh, you know what? We do. We do. Um, so he put a message that said that he wants them, the cops, to tell everybody to stop jamming the radio because he's trying to use the radio and he finds that like people are jamming it because he asked Taco Bell to do that and there's like all these other people doing it now and he wants them to stop jamming the radio basically so he can use it. So he turns on the TV and he's watching kind of the news reports about what's been going on and... He sees Kathy. She's on, you know, on the screen. She's been brought in for like an interview and she is talking to him through the TV and tells him, you know, you're doing the right thing and, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, he sees Al on the TV. Uh, he sees uh, Al doesn't uh, reveal it because they ask him what came out of the building and Al doesn't want to tell him that it was his wallet. So he's kind of keeping it on the DL, um, I guess, because Al kind of realizes that he's trying to trying to keep the fact that he's alive secret. But I think it's pretty obvious that he's alive too, because we had the cheering people and everything. So he kind of blows his cover that he has a momentary like mystery here uh, pretty quickly, which I thought was kind of a mistake, but that's what he does. Oh, we have a moment where he, uh, he talks about how Carl is a really big guy with shoulder length, blonde hair. And that astounded me that he's described in this book as being exactly how he is in the movie. Like they cast, they cast someone who looks exactly like that. Yeah, definitely. Which like, that's such a random thing. Cause it's just a throwaway descriptor. And yet for whatever reason, when they cast this guy, they were like, we want him to look identical though. He does in the book. <laughs> he, they said something about him looking like a drummer in a rock and roll band. Yeah. Well, like think about and, that guy in the movie. Yeah. Like he looks just like that. <laughs> exactly. Like European blonde, huge, all of these things. Uh, anyway, this Joe realizes that there's food in these offices, and he's like, oh, shit, I could have been eating this whole time. So he starts going around scavenging for food. All right, chapter 16. He hears a lot of silence on the radio. Yeah, he starts thinking about how he's going to have pain the rest of his life if he does make it out of this. He starts hearing the elevator's whine, and one opens up. He stops it by, I guess, pushing the button so that it'll open up uh, you know, on this floor unexpectedly, and then he just like sticks his gun in and shoots because he's hoping that the terrorists have come down. Um, but they haven't. Instead, it's a, a television camera, which he thinks they are going to use to like broadcast something. And now he's screwed it up. So he takes the camera. Uh, he turns on the turns on the radio, talks to Al, mentions yeah mentions that they had this plan to go on to go on TV, and he's screwed it up. So then he throws the camera out the window. Um, so it's interesting because this does happen in the movie, right? Like uh, Gruber does this broadcast, and in the book, it seems like maybe that was the plan, but. Joe screws it up. Oh, when he was firing the machine gun, it got jammed is the other thing. And like now he like looks at it and he can't fix it. It's like 
he would have to take it apart. So he just throws it in like a desk or something and gets rid of it. So now he just has his handgun. And he's he's watching TV again and he sees uh he sees some stuff from earlier where he was like standing at the edge and, and waving a gun around <laughs> and sees what he looks like. And as he's watching this, the elevator opens and someone starts firing at him and uh, catches him by surprise. But it's funny because he gets he's able to escape because the the guy who's firing doesn't like actually find him. And he slips out into the stairs and and escapes. And then he basically comes back around, gets a gets a fire axe and uh, goes all. uh, Was it uh, Jack Torrance on on this guy (laughs) (laughs) from The Shining? (laughs) Johnny. Uh, Yeah, he uh, he sneaks up on this guy and cuts him apart with a with a fire axe. Taco Bell comes on the radio and says, uh, man, they're really fucking you over, cowboy. So this was interesting, too, because I think this is where this bit of dialogue got put, got taken and put into uh, Gruber, right? Like, because Gruber calls him cowboy all the time in the movie. So it's interesting because I wonder if this is where they got it. Like, they liked Taco Bell calling him cowboy because they thought it was really appropriate. And they're like, we need what we want Gruber to call him that. Right. So from an adaptation point of view. We'll talk about it more when we get to the actual movie, but there's something cool about how this action movie was a send up, had like some lines and stuff to older action movies and that kind of thing, specifically cowboy films like Westerns. Okay. So Taco Bill has like figured out a way to rig up his radio so that that, uh, Joe can talk to Kathy now. Uh, So he puts him through to Kathy well, it was it's weird too because he like puts the walkie-talkie up to, he puts the radio up to the TV, and also it's it's just such a weird way to have them talk to each other. Yeah, and so it becomes clear that he has this plan where he's going to use it as bait for someone else to come and kill him, and so he sets it up to where like the TV's in another room and he's looking at it through the glass. He's talking to Kathy and he's using. He even like apologizes because he's like, you know, people shouldn't use each other if they just met each other. And but she also kind of gets it like she figures it intuits that he's using it as a trap. So I thought that was a little little unbelievable. But still, that's what he does. And then. They're talking and he uh, he, he starts telling Kathy, like, oh, I'm in trouble. And I don't know, it's a little confusing, but yeah, he's basically using this conversation as a trap and a man shows up to where he is and uh joe shoots him through the glass and blows him away and that's the ninth terrorist now he's killed and then he apologizes kathy for using her as a, as a distraction uh and then the, of course there, there's the big oh shit moment where all of a sudden gruber gets on the radio and says your daughter wants to speak to you and then he puts stephanie on and she says do you know do what they say or something <laughs> i kind of felt like this should have happened earlier too because it adds way more tension because we had gotten to the right. point where we're like, he's a superhero and he can kill everybody and he can outsmart them. But like, had the daughter been threatened earlier, there would have been more tension for more chapters. I don't know. Yeah, although I don't know, like at this point when he has the daughter, like it forces this final confrontation has to happen now. Whereas That's true, yeah. it wouldn't have made a lot of sense for him to, you know, be able to continue to do anything at this point. Yeah, that's true. He would have just, it would have just like basically become him fighting his way to the hostages like it does. So he has this thought, and this is, this happens a lot in this novel where Joe theorizes about why something happened. And then we are just, we just have to take that as fact, right? And so he theorizes that she turned herself over 
to like protect her children which okay like i don't i I don't know that seems like a really bad idea because we had no indication that gruber figured out who she was and why would you like put a target on yourself at all it just doesn't make any sense to me if that's true so gruber is taunting uh basically taunting joe and saying that he's protecting this evil corporation and who's been stealing money from the people of chile and he's making himself out to be this like freedom fighter but you know talking about their cause and everything and he hears them blow the safe and when he hears that like he's been doing this mental calculus where he knows there's three of them left and he knows one is down below then he hears one below the safe up on a different floor so he knows that there's only one left on this floor and it's gruber who has his daughter so you know somewhere in there he figures out he can go out in front of the hostages and he comes out and basically tells them all to start going downstairs and uh he looks really crazy and like covered in dirt and his grandkids are there and we have like it's very like there's not a lot of like weight is given to this but his grandkids are there and they say he looks like one of them and then there he's like i'll take care of it you go down <laughs> like and he just tells them to leave and so the hostages start going down and as this happens like gruber pops out and shoots a woman um wounding her shoots her in the stomach or something i don't know this is kind of a confusing scene like how this all played out but yeah, basically Gruber shoots a hostage or two and then like takes the daughter and go and like leaves to another area. And then the rest of the hostages start going down and Leland uh, basically is separate now from them. And he, he decides he's going to offer to trade himself as a hostage in exchange for his daughter. Yeah, that's basically what happened. He he literally just comes in the room and all the hostages, there's like 75 hostages and they all start heading down and he has to go try to get his daughter for this final showdown. But, but yeah, like Gruber's like kind of there and he shoots one of them and then leaves. Yeah, they run off. Like I guess he's trying to move his way through the crowd to get to them or something of hostages leaving. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, so he, he, he you know, it's important to note that his, you know, grandkids say he looks like one of them because that becomes a clue later. So Gruber starts talking and, and it's clear that he's kind of waxing about his cause because he knows that the news media is picking it up. And so he starts talking about how, you know, the Klaxon building and, and, and they're evil and they're funding the fascist regime in Chile. And, you know, he's a freedom fighter and all this stuff. I kind of bought the cause. I just didn't, don't know if it was like, I don't know. I like the cause. Like, I like the fact that he's like a freedom fighter because it, it's more than them just trying to like get money or more than them yeah. just trying to uh, like pull off a heist or something. Well, and it muddies it muddies the water of like clear morality here because yeah, like we don't necessarily we're not necessarily rooting for these people like who are, who are have clearly done done something and it's like it becomes clear that there's like an arms deal going on too, where yeah. like illegal arms are getting sold or something and it's all very shady. So the people he is protecting are caught up in this kind of criminal enterprise as well. So nobody's uh, you know above reproach here, including his daughter, who's part of it. So he sends the elevator up, and, and Gruber uses the same trick, stops it, shoots instead. He takes the stairs, he takes the stairs, and then calls Gruber to like taunt him and be like, "Ha ha ha! You tried something that I tried earlier, and it didn't work. You thought that was gonna work, you know?" <laughs> Which I thought was kind of funny. And this is the moment where uh, Leland realizes that Carl's still alive, 
um, because he thinks about how the grandkids said he looked like one of them, and then he puts two and two together and realizes that Carl lived through the explosion and it was covered in dirt and blood. So yeah, he plays, he comes out, this is finally kind of the scene where he comes walking out of the elevator, like all messed up in the movie. And in the book, he thinks about how he's going to really play up his wounds and he's going to limp really badly and, and, and really, uh, look like he's a complete mess. And he comes out and, uh, Gruber's got his daughter, uh, hostage he yells at Ste- Steffi to, you know, get clear. Although it's interesting because Gruber, like, knows that he has a gun on his back somehow. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, Leland had, like, taped a gun, the handgun to his back. And yeah. this is weird. I don't think it plays as well as the movie does. Yeah. And Gruber, it, the whole time Gruber, it, like, um, Joe keeps thinking Gruber just knows everything. Like, he has, like, almost a supernatural ability to know what's going on, right? And How this could is he another moment know where that there was a gun on his back. He had to have yeah, seen it. Yeah, like guess, he just but... knows somehow. Yeah, it's it's so almost weird. supernatural. I, I don't know. It's I, I didn't buy that he could know that cuz it's such a weird thing to do. But he's like, "Yeah, you have a gun on, you know, at your on your collar or whatever." Like he calls it like exactly everything. It's very weird. But then it doesn't matter because so so he he calls it but then he goes for the gun, gets it out, and he yells at Stephanie to like run away, but instead of doing that, she attacks Gruber and like tries to like knock the gun out of his hands, I guess. And it becomes clear she's doing it because she feels so guilty about what's happened to Joe and how screwed up he is. And she won't get clear. Joe shoots Gruber a bunch of times. And as he's falling back, just like in the movie, he grabs onto Stephanie and grabs onto her watch and falls out the window. You know, Joe runs over, but is not able to get there in time. And she's pulled out the window by her watch and his daughter falls to her death with hans which is or, sorry gruber <laughs> pretty pretty <laughs> surprising pretty different <laughs> yeah i mean it adds a little bit of weight it adds a little bit of you know heartache to the end of the story i think it's, it works but it's not the it, it works especially in the context of this novel because it's yeah. like always been about how brutal everything is and how like unforgiving and how he's like regrets a lot of the kills and i don't know it kind of it kind of comes full circle now you know, and and I think really, if you look at you, you look at the symbolism of the watch. The watch is the symbol of her tie to this corporation. It's what Ellis gave her, and you know, it's important that that's what Gruber grabs and that's what pulls her out the window, right? Like it's it's her tie to this evil corporation. It's her sins. She can't rise above it. She she gets dragged down by them, right in this yeah. moment. Yep, and I like that. Saying all that and how it does kind of work for this novel, I think the bummer ending to this novel with the daughter dying is a, is one of the reasons why it's not as it's not as famous as it could be. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I think people just go away with more of a like a sour taste in their mouth than they would if it was more of a, like a story about him saving his daughter. Yeah, it, I mean, just imagine Taken, but the daughter dies at the end. yeah yeah like i get it and like i think he had some interesting ideas about what he was doing by having this play out this way but i just i don't know i don't know if it's a better novel for this choice yeah i don't i don't really know i mean i guess for the novel i would say that i get it and it works but i i don't think it worked like i said i don't think it works as well as it does in the movie like i think the movie did a lot of things changed a lot of things that worked very well and it maybe it was the more popular thing to do, but ultimately, even I think it it just is better for a story. <laughs> so how context. surprised were you when it happened? 
Um, she died. I don't. It happened pretty quickly, and so she like she like was falling out the window, and he talks about like how he could hear her screaming the whole way. Was it gonna be? Did you think it was gonna be the same where he was gonna grab her wrist and have this moment? You know. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought so. I thought she'd make it, and then when she died, I was kind of just like, oh, like that. Uh, that's different. That's cool. I wasn't. I, oh, I, I will say that yeah. I wasn't like that shocked. Yeah. So like you said, he's screaming, and he he. Uh, the next chapter, eighteen, which is the final chapter. He's continuing the scream that he heard Steffi make, and he talks about how it like carries on, and he starts thinking about all the dead women in his life, and you know maybe even all the dead women he's killed, and he thinks about his dead wife and his dead mother and now his dead daughter, and it's really kind of bummer moment, right? And Al comes on the radio, and they're talking about the hostages coming down, and he at this he has two two bullets left in his gun and he's like well that's just enough because he's you know he's got two two terrorists left and he like really he doesn't care at all now like he's just like fuck it if i die i die and so he goes up to the top um he's gonna go up to the top floor where he knows that one was getting into the into the safe right um and he's as he's going he starts thinking about how um stephanie attacked gruber because she was worried about him and like so he feels like even doubly bad because he knows that she was doing it because of how like he looks and everything. Anyway, he gets up to the top floor and he finds another really young woman who's described, you know, as being like really pretty and super young, like 20 years old. And she's like getting money out of the safe and uh, he tells her to freeze. And then uh, he like has her bring a gun to him. And she thinks that, like, she's, like, a hostage now. And instead, he's just like, nope, fuck you. And he shoots her, he, like, shoots her in the head as she arrives. Um, and really vicious. And it's it's interesting because, like, if his daughter dies, I don't know that he kills this woman. What do you think? If his daughter, if his daughter didn't die. die sorry. Yeah, if yeah. his daughter didn't die. If his daughter didn't die, probably not. I think that, that it's gotten to the once once Gruber's dead, it gets to the point where you're just like, all right, we'll just take all these rest of these people in and get information out of them or whatever. Yeah, but instead he's like, I'm gonna finish what I started. I'm gonna kill every last one of them. Yeah, right. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think this it starts to sour your t- the taste in your mouth a little bit, right? Like instead of this like heroic thing, now it's become a little bit more of a out for blood, right? Mm-hmm. Um. And yeah, he viciously murders this this woman, which is uh, eleven out of twelve. Now he's killed, and uh, he also then takes a bunch of the cash and starts throwing it out the window, uh, which I thought was kind of a funny moment. And this is his like fuck you to the corporation too. Like he, this is him not wanting to be the savior of this elite, like this you know ill gotten gains. Yeah, he's throwing like six million dollars out the window, but he he <laughs> does it in a way that like the 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 news cameras and the helicopters can't see him and stuff and. I mean, I yeah, get it. it's kind of like the moment where he's like, well, everything like he like you said, he does, he's not picking sides like he doesn't like everybody kind of has something that they've morally done that was wrong. Yeah. And so he he uh, talks to Al and says he's coming down and he's like, did you get that one down there? And Al says, no, they haven't got they haven't seen anyone. So he knows there's one more out there. Um, but the cops start coming up into the stairwells and he starts thinking about how. He really wants to go find Steffi. I'm sorry, uh, Kathy, not Steffi. <laughs> he really wants to go find Kathy and that he has his grandkids and that those are kind of reasons to live. And he's like, I guess that's enough. And so he starts heading back down and um, 
you know, Al mentions, you know, there's all these people trying to go for money right now. And Joe's like, oh, I don't know anything about any money, like playing, yeah. playing dumbs. Cause he already knows that he would get in a lot of trouble if, if it came out that he, that he had done this. And the cops like, don't really believe that there's, they're like, are you sure there was 12? Are you sure? And he's like, yes, there was 12 and they're not buying it. And it's just, there was a funny moment uh, earlier where he's like, I should have been taking scalps. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. That's they, pretty like, wild, dude. It's pretty fucked up. Yeah. But uh, they don't believe they they continue to not believe him. I just don't I just don't understand the police. I, I get that, like, you should be skeptical that there might be more. But why would you assume just like why would you not trust this guy after he's killed 11 of them? Supposedly, they don't believe that he's killed all of these people. And they also were like, no, I think we got them all. I think we're good. And yeah, there's all this evidence one. that he has. Right. Yeah. Like everything he's said has been true. And there are all these terrorists are dying and dead. So like, why would you not believe him? I agree. So the police find him in the stairwell and carry him down and they're out among the crowd when all of a sudden, just like in the movie, Carl is there. Like he's like he's, I guess, hidden himself among the crowd and he shows up and he goes to shoot Joe and Al (laughs) instead of saving the day, you know, well, he does. But instead of saving the day, Joe, just shooting Carl, he pushes Dwayne Robinson (laughs) His in the way of the line his, of fire. Yeah, his like superior officer. His commanding officer. He pushes him in the way. And Dwayne gets shot to death by Carl here, as well as a few other like reporters and people in the crowd. And then after Dwayne's dead, uh, Al then shoots Carl, blows his head off. Yeah. And he's <laughs> and, like, he um, died a hero. He saved your life. I saw it. He oh, yeah. In the and way. the doctor who was like starting to work on Joe also gets killed. Yeah. But he says, and, like, he um, says, like, oh, Robinson saved your life. He jumped in the way of the bullets, like, kind of just saying, like, he died a <laughs> yeah, hero. Yeah, they, they have this moment where they agree. They're like, yeah, Dwayne, Dwayne died a hero. He tried to save me. <laughs> this is such a, like, weird, fucked up thing to happen at the end of this book, too. Like, this is almost worse than the daughter dying, right? Because it's Al, just... I don't know, like, it takes Al, who is this really, like, cool, heroic character, and it makes him pretty shitty. He just threw, threw his off, commanding officer in the way. I think they wanted to stick it to the commanding officer who wouldn't listen to, to Leland the whole time. Like, this is what you get for not listening all along. Yeah, it really, he gets a lot here. <laughs> and then, then he shoots Carl. So it's like, you know, the people who adapted this probably rightfully go, why doesn't he just shoot him right away instead of taking the time to push the other guy, you know? Yeah. And then we're at the end of the novel here. Joe ends the novel by closing his eyes and thinking about flying his plane. Yeah. That's it. That's the end. Um, there was a little bonus feature. I don't. Did you skim that? Did you read that at all? Was that in your version? No, I didn't have that. Okay, so yeah. So mine had this little bonus thing where um, it was like the his estate had found the outline he wrote mm-hmm. for this novel, um, which was only moderately interesting, but the, the, something that I thought was cool in there was that they say that in the in the novel so in in real life thorpe had a home that faced this big high rise or it was like inside of this huge high rise and that they that his family knows that he was thinking about that high rise when he was writing this novel and the description of when uh joe goes to the lights and flushes the sos mm-hmm. the description of the place that responds to him is his is place. supposedly very similar to where his real house is. That's cool. And so they think that essentially Thorpe was writing himself into the novel as the mystery man who who responds to Joe's SOS. That's funny. That's Which cool. I, th- I, I think it's a pretty cool little detail, right? Yeah. 
So I had a question about um, the end of the novel here for you. Um, yeah. The way that they describe the very end of the novel where he's like in pain and can't move anymore and all this stuff. And then he shuts his yeah. eyes and he like, um, it like says he wants to think about flying for a while. Um, do you think that he died there in the novel? Because I thought that you could read it as him dying almost. Yeah, I don't think he does, though, because I don't think any of his wounds are fatal. And I, so I think it's more just him trying to find peace in the last, last moments here. Yeah, I think you're right, too. Um, I just wondered if you, if you, because I kind of got, yeah. I like you thought about it, read it for a little way. bit. You can definitely, yeah. the way that it's, the way that it's written there at the end, it kind of seems like he's like, he's like, I'm done and like dies right there. But I think you're, I think he's still alive because what would be the point of him not just getting shot by Carl at the end then? To yeah, put I don't know. and I mean, it's not like he takes any additional wounds too because if, if he had been shot another time by carl at the end there and they had made that clear then yeah i think it would have been a bit like a more open question is he dying from that additional wound right but he doesn't get hit by carl there so i i just don't feel like at that point he has like a lethal wound yeah anyway uh apparently thorpe was really interested in undercutting the image of this like really heroic man by all these terrible things that are happening. And he wanted to really like juxtapose how helpless Joe is at the end with how powerful he had been throughout the novel and able and like capable of taking on these terrorists. And I, it's really interesting. And, and it's, you know, Thorpe clearly had that in mind and the nothing lasts forever title is caught up in that somehow. Like it's kind of vague to me, but it's a lot of this, like, you know, his like hopelessness about the world and about how life is like, you know, so, transient and it's this like interesting like bummer mentality that that thorpe took to this novel and and really wanted to emphasize i guess yeah. as i, I um, think there's definitely that that also has something to do with like aging like basically what you were saying is just like as you get older there are certain things that that like you could you could almost see the, his his journey through this as like his life where it's like he starts off all like ready to help and doing all this stuff and as he gets on he gets scarred along his life and he gets wounded by all these things that happen and then by the end he's just like completely trashed and has to try to pick up pieces in some way yeah and this reminds me of something i didn't i didn't end up looking into but i will for the movie episode i believe the next movie die hard 2 is also adapted off a novel but it's a different author it's a novel by a different author. Interesting. So I, I don't know. know. I'm curious to look into that because that could potentially maybe next year we look we, we revisit with, with Die Hard <laughs> Die 2 Hard. or something because yeah. uh, it's also another Christmas movie. I didn't realize that it was that that one was based off a novel too, but I need to do some research into that. So I'll, I'll look into that and then we can talk about it on the movie episode. But uh, speaking of uh, episodes, we should uh, mention we have a special episode coming up, right? Yeah, we're planning on doing something a little different. Uh for new years and rather than covering a specific subject uh we're going to be putting out like a retrospective episode where we kind of touch on some of the projects we've done and and revisit some of the feedback we've gotten and just kind of talk over how how our progress has come so far since we started this podcast yeah i mean I, there's definitely been some feedback we've gotten throughout throughout our, throughout our coverage of these different projects that we didn't get to and i feel bad about it and i think this is a nice chance to kind of stop take a breath revisit some things get clever some old feedback and uh kind of get ready for the new year because the fall is the last episode of 2017 so if, if you if that sounds cool to you please send us some questions because uh we would love to be able to, to talk about some new stuff too so 
um, send them now. Uh, and you can send those to inktofilm at gmail.com. Um, any question you want, like if you, if you're curious about how anything about how we run the show, about how we choose our, 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 uh, titles about us as people, anything like that, um, send in those questions. Yeah. And future projects, anything you wanted to say yeah. about a past project that you didn't get to say, um, you have a couple of weeks now to get it in so that we can, we can try to touch on that for a retrospective. Also, any other feedback that you want to send just in general for this episode uh, going up to the Die Hard film, which will be our next episode, you can send it inktofilm at gmail.com. Yeah, and I really want, I wanted to mention I'm going to PodCon this weekend uh, in Seattle, uh, which is going to be like a big podcasting convention. I know like Welcome to Night Vale, uh, MBMBAM, uh, a lot of big podcasts are going to be there. Um, that I'm a fan of. So I'm, I'm kind of going as a fan, but also as someone who runs a podcast. So I'm, I'm going to take some flyers and hand them out maybe. But yeah, if you're going to that, reach out to me because I'd love to, to meet up with someone who's, who's listened to our show. That'd be really cool. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So if you also wanted to reach out to us in any way, you could, you could uh, reach out on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And we're pretty active on those accounts. Yeah, absolutely. And it'd be, it'd be really cool to hear from you there. Also, uh, the, the if you want to help us out, the number one thing you can do is subscribe. Uh, make sure you get every episode as it releases. Uh, also, leaving us a rating uh, would be really super helpful. Um, a rating like this one, which come to us from uh, iTunes, five stars by Dreadlord. Uh, says, he says, great analysis, great idea for a podcast. Each episode g- keeps getting better and better. When I listened, I feel like I'm having just having a conversation after watching a movie in the theater, standing around and talking about it in the parking lot or something. Love that you guys focus on adaptations, because not only are they good books and good movies, but they're usually the best movies. Nothing beats having an author spend all that time building characters and a backstory for you. I really like the diversity of genres, too. Keep up the good work. Man, that's a great one. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, thank you. If you guys want to send in any sort of reviews like that, uh, we would really appreciate it. So lastly, we just wanted to say thank you to Audible again. Our Audible affiliate link is audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And with that, you can get those 30 free days and one free credit for any novel in their selection of audiobooks. And also, we wanted to say thank you to Chris Hayes Music for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. Well, stay tuned for next week when we get to the movie. And, uh, you know, happy holidays, everybody. I'm excited to, to get to this film. Yeah, happy holidays. All right. See you later. I'm Luke. And I'm James. Thanks for listening.